I could either let this devastate me, which it does. I felt like I can be sad about it later. Like, I'm not gonna use the time he has left on this earth to let my sadness about this situation overwhelm me. Because, you know, life is short. And I always knew life was short, but now it's like, damn. Last time on Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, Nakaya Cherry Tinchilla delivered part one of her story in which she talked about her early career in fashion and television and how she was always listening to her heart and feeling as though she were called to do more. At the same time, her home life became very confusing when her husband began exhibiting odd behaviors. That chapter ended as her husband, Mike, who'd been hospitalized numerous times for mental illness, came home and things between them seemed to repair themselves. The biggest trials, however, were yet to come. Thus begins part two with Nakaya on listening to your heart and tenaciously keeping on. How do I explain it? It was very, he got to the point where he just, he just listened to me and I would go out and do things and he would stay at home and I'd put the TV on for him and he'd sleep and he'd watch the TV and I'd take Augie to school and then I'd take Augie to his play dates and I'd pretend like everything was great. I had the kids, I was in the mom group doing all the things and Augie was whatever, doing all his little things, his little kids. But a couple of times I came home and Mike had taken all the pictures of me and Augie and turned them face down. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what is that? And I was just starting to get paranoid that that meant something. Right. Because I was like, I don't know what what's up with that, but I don't like it. You know what I'm saying? Because you just got out of the mental hospital. You Now you're turning pictures to me. I was like, I don't know what you're doing in here all day. You coming up with these scenarios in your head. So two weeks of that around early to mid-December 2016, I took Mike to UCLA to the emergency room. And when he was out of my range, I went and talked to them. And I was like, listen, my husband has been had under two psych evals and uh, been admitted to the psych ward twice. And I just think something's going on with him. I don't know what's going on, but whatever, whatever. So they took him back in there and they started asking him questions. And then he started acting hostile. And they ended up putting him in the lock ward in the emergency room at UCLA, which I have been in several times now. The psychiatrist came out and he started, and this is the first time I had been there when Mike had been admitted to the psych ward, right? And so the psychiatrist came out and asked me a bunch of questions. And I told him about Tourette's and I told him about how Mike had been, they told, said one hand he was psychotic, another hand schizophrenic, and he had been fine, and then all of a sudden he wasn't. And they asked me a bunch of questions. I was like, oh, yeah, he does that. Oh, yeah, he does that. Oh, yeah, that happened. Oh, yeah, that happened. And they were like, have you ever heard of Huntington's disease? And I was like, no, what's that? They were like, I want you to go home. I want you to Google it and look at the symptoms. And and then I want, when you come back tomorrow, we could talk about any other symptoms, write down any of the symptoms or occurrences he's had of this disease, and we could talk about it. So I went home, I Googled Huntington's disease, and Mike had every single one of the symptoms, every single one, every single symptoms. He had two or three ideations of each of the symptoms. And I was like, holy shit, is this what's going on with them? And then I was just like, wait a minute, this is hereditary. And then I remember him telling me about his mom. And then I started reading, and then I became obsessed that whole night. And I read everything that was to read on Huntington's disease that existed on the internet, which if you don't know, Huntington's disease is basically ALS plus Parkinson's plus Alzheimer's plus dementia. Um, and then that's Huntington's disease. It's the worst of, they call it the devil's disease. It's the worst of the worst of the neurodegenerative diseases that exist. It leads to complete degeneration and it kills all the cells in your body. So you lose the ability to walk, to talk, to think rationally, to breathe, to speak, everything. You just slowly, everything starts to go away. And it's, only you can only get it if you inherit it and um mike inherited it from his mom 
And I, later on, I found out that his grandfather had it and seven of his nine aunt and uncles had it, but they didn't call it Huntington's disease. They called it something else. So that's why. But Mike had, he had, remember I told you he had had problems running and he was like running weird. He had started having mobility issues, but he just ignored them. It was just like whatever. And he, but he started to have, it was more of the mental deterioration. I think a part of it was like when I went to stay with my parents for a while and he had to take on everything by himself. That that stress helped exacerbate the mental his mental deterioration, and and then when he thought that I was going to leave him, that just exacerbated it more. And so, and when he was on his own, he completely fell apart. And so that's how he ended up. He couldn't keep anything together. So they did a genetic test, which came back in January, which said Mike 100% had Huntington's disease, which was like yeah. okay. So that changed everything in terms of the way we were able to deal with it. It, turns, it changed everything in a way I felt about everything that had happened the past years before because I had been so angry at him and, and, had, and I had my own anger and issues and resentment towards his behavior towards me. But then when I realized all of this is happening because he had a, a mutant gene in his brain and he was terminally ill and didn't know it, I just let it go. <laughs> what the just like that. Just like that. Just like that. And immediately it was like, Cause I, cause I had, remember I had had, I'd had all these feelings of like, I can't believe I chose somebody to marry who would treat mm, me this way. Mm-hmm. So I had all these feelings of, of self doubt about how could I have picked somebody to love who would be this way. And also the doctor saying he had Tourette's, he never had Tourette's and then all these things. And, um, uh, and I just had so much hate for myself because I thought I was a good judge of character. You know, I could sense people's energies and essence and like, you know, like I chose this man. I got engaged to him after the week. I married him. You know, I brought him amongst my family. And then he turns out to be an asshole. Like, even though people do that every day, people marry assholes all the time. You know what I'm saying? So when it turned out that he had Huntington's disease, I was like, oh, because mm-hmm. the, the man I married was in there. But the disease, the thing about Huntington's disease is that. It takes, takes over. Mm-hmm. It takes over everything. One of the things they found that during the pandemic is that um, researchers found that the Huntington disease will kill cancer. It will kill. It kills everything. Like you can't have cancer in HD because the HD will kill it. Mm. You know, and it's like, but not like you're gonna switch right. to having cancer to have HD. Is you don't want that. You know what I'm saying? Because it's much worse of a disease. So Mike was admitted to Resnick, and they started treating him for his Huntington disease, and that's when I met his great doctors, and he got a neuropsychiatrist and he started doing better. But they said that he would have to be taken care of. He could no longer manage himself. But that's one of the things, because one of the things people don't understand about people with mental illness is because at first I thought he was mentally ill and I was trying to get him help and get him forced to take his meds. But you can't do that for somebody that's mentally ill. But my mental illness was just a, a condition of his Huntington's disease, of his medical condition, which means that that changed things up. So I immediately became, the doctor was like, you need to become his, his conservator. So I immediately became his conservator. I did all the paperwork myself and presented it to the judge. And the judge is like, you did it all yourself? I was like, yeah. She, he was like, okay, then go ahead, girl. I, was, I did everything I was supposed to do. I filed all the documents and I became Mike's complete conservator. And I, at the Department of Homeland Security, I retired him out. He got early retirement because he was ill. So he got a pension, which was great. And I remember I was, when I was signing up for long-term care and health and life insurance, Mike didn't want to sign up for those things because I did all this paperwork for his job. And he was like, I'm not going to need those things. I don't like to do that because that's bad luck. I was like, listen, you never know what could happen. What if you get hit by a car or something? 
We need long-term care insurance just in case. And thank God I did. I tell everybody now, long-term care insurance through your place of work is maybe about 6 to $10 every two weeks. It is worth it. Especially when what people don't realize is that everybody wants to talk about pandemics. We are in a pandemic of neurodegenerative diseases. They suspect in the next 20 years, 40% of our population are going to have some type of neurodegenerative disease, either Parkinson's, ALS, or Alzheimer's, or dementia. Or HD, which is actually very rare. Only about maybe 30 to 50,000 people in the country have it. But these neurodegenerative diseases, for whatever reason, are creeping up on us and people don't realize it. And long-term care insurance was the saving grace because we had so much long-term care insurance. I put Mike in a really nice nursing home, which had a pool. Of course, Mike didn't last long in that nursing home because Mike kept trying to escape because he wanted to be with his family. He wanted to be with me and Augie. And that's just not how it worked. So he broke out of that one. (laughs) <laughs> and then I put him in another one and he broke out of that one and I put him in another one. The joke is that Mike has escaped from every um, nursing home <laughs> on the west side of Los Angeles. It got to the point where the nursing homes that would accept him weren't as good as the ones before because when they found out, because Mike was a 220 pounds, six foot guy, you know, most of the other, everybody else in the nursing home, I remember some of the older ladies would try to flirt <laughs> with him and he'd be like, why are they trying to talk to me like that? Because, you know, he would be the youngest person in nurse. He was in his forties. He was in his um, early forties at yeah. this time. And, and so then I tried to take care of Mike m- myself. Right. So then I was like, okay, I'm just going to rent a big house and I'm going to take care of Mike and Augie. And also at this time, this is before I realized Augie was sick. Because when Mike first got sick and they told me it was hereditary, I wanted to test Augie. And they said, you can't because of the ethics of autonomy. And I didn't realize at the time, but it took it sometimes took between three to seven years for kids with HD to be tested for HD. But what saved me is that I had already put Augie in therapy when I decided to leave Mike when we had gone to Berkeley. So he had already been in therapy long enough that six months later, they tested Augie. But I already knew Augie had symptoms because he had been exhibiting symptoms from juvenile Huntington's disease, which is a totally different disease from regular Huntington's disease. It is even more rare. I remember it started with a triggered thumb. Then when he was in kindergarten, his thumb kept holding like this and clicking. And I took him to the pediatrician. She was like, oh, it's nothing to go away. I was like, I don't know. And then people try to think, oh, maybe he's autistic. I was like, Augie isn't autistic because when you look at the spectrum and they tell you what to look for, Augie doesn't do any of those things. He's just exhibiting some abnormal behaviors that's uh, were concerning prior to Mike being diagnosed. And I thought it was maybe just the drama or PTSD from his father having been acting all out of pocket for so long. But it turns out, no. So I guess uh, 10 months later, in November of 2013, no, actually a year and a half later, in November of 2014, Augie, they finally let Augie have a gene test and his test came back in November as having Huntington's disease. And not only that, his CAG levels were determined how fast the disease progressed was in the early 90s because Mike's CAG levels were at 40. So the higher your G- his CAG levels, the younger it affects you and the faster it is. Because Mike didn't pre- present symptoms till he was in his mid to late 30s, whereas Augie started presenting symptoms when he was about to turn five because that's when he had the trigger thumb. So that's when it really started to dawn on me that I have a husband who is terminally ill and I have a kid who's terminally ill that they're telling me that it's probably not going to live as long as my husband's going to live. That Because um, Huntington's disease, juvenile Huntington's disease progresses extremely quickly, unfortunately. But so, Nakaya, so when you got your husband's diagnosis, it was almost a relief because it explained so much about behavior yes. that you didn't like and it 
kind of help you figure out, okay, I wasn't a crazy person for seeing what I saw originally in this man. And, and now that explains something when your son gets the diagnosis, it is not that it is not explaining away anything bad. It is just bad news. Yeah. So terrible. So how, yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) how do you deal with that in the moment? Well, um, how do I explain it? Uh, I guess the first time I realized, even before his test came back, I realized he had Huntington's disease. And I tried to prepare the people around me. And everybody was like, you know, you're just tripping. I'll give you fine. Nobody wanted to think that it was possible. But I had already, I had actually been living with it, and realizing that that was what was happening for like a year before I shared it mm-hmm. with anybody. Nobody I knew even thought that Augie could be sick. You know, Augie was a happy kid, always been a happy kid, always been the happiest fucking baby kid. He still is. And but so I had a period where I had like a dark, like two, three months where I was like really, really sad and I was really, really angry. And it was the sort of thing I did not necessarily share with anyone. Because when Augie had been in school, when I had, when Mike had been acting crazy, that was sort of like a dark time for me too. But I would be with the kids every day and the energy would be in a preschool teacher. The joy that the kids had just totally brings you out of that. But when I realized that Augie was sick, it was like, I need, before I can talk to you about it, I really have to figure out how I feel about it. And so that was, uh, that was a very intense process for me. I deal with things this way. I could either do one or two things. I could either get lost. Because I know as a parent of a terminally ill child, a chronically ill child, of a kid with special needs, sometimes it's, I don't want to say easy, but I find it, I find that often I meet a lot of parents that, and there's no judgment against them, but they are often caught into how it makes them feel to have to deal Mm -hmm. with that, as opposed to the child to have to deal with that. And I knew that Augie's feelings about this would be... The genesis of his feelings about this would come about based on how I presented it to him. Right. So it was like I could either let this devastate me, which it it does. I just present my devastation in a, in a different way than most people do because it's not like I'm not devastated because I am. Right. You know, you got people don't even realize because Augie's really really sick, and this is before he was really sick. Like he's really sick now, you know, and he needs twenty four hour nursing care the whole nine. Um, but at this point he didn't, but I always, I felt like I can be sad about it later. Yeah. You know, like I'm not going to use the time he has left on this earth to let my sadness about the situation overwhelm me because, you know, life is short and I'd always knew life was short, but now I was like, damn, I married this man. I had this baby. I thought I had the rest of my life. I was going to have grandkids and see him apply for him to go to Dartmouth and, you know, da, 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 da. I used to joke at the beginning that Huntington's, well, it wasn't a joke. It was kind of like a feeling I had at the beginning that Huntington's disease killed my happy ending because I met a man. I fell in love. It was a great love. And I had a baby. I loved a great thing. And Huntington's disease, at the end of the day, is going to take all that away from me. But I just, it wasn't so much that Huntington's disease sort of is killing my happy ending. It's just changing it. So what I did with Augie was I presented it and like, because I had told him that his dad was sick. And he had a mutant gene in his brain. And one of the things I've always known with Augie is that I've, we've really been big on 
superhero things and like movies and supernatural sort of science fiction kind of thing. And I've always, he's really been into like the X-Men and stuff like that. So it's the same way I presented it to the kids in his school when we told his classmates. It's sort of like you have a mutant gene in your brain and the mutant gene is working against you and you're going to fight against it as much as you can, but it is eventually it's going to make it so it's going to be hard for you to walk. It's going to be hard for you to talk to mama and to papa. And, um, and one day you might die, but one day everybody's going to die, you know? So, so that's just how it is. And so I want you to think of all the things you want to do and we're going to do all those things. And that's where the baby bucket list came about. And so I brought Mike home to live with us and I thought I could really manage it, but I couldn't because Mike was very unmanageable. I remember one time, right before Augie's birthday, he's like, eighth and ninth birthday, Mike went missing for eight weeks. Eight weeks. And the only, eight weeks. And the only way I was able to find him, even though there was a missing person report out on him, the only way I was, ever to, I was able to find him is through billing records. Because, you know, Mike had Aetna, but he also, because he was uh, retired and disabled, he also was on Medicare. Because then I started getting bills from Medicare saying that, oh, you got billed for being at this facility. And it was like hospitals right by us that he was missing, but they thought he was mentally ill. He was going inside the hospitals asking for help and asking for food, but because he didn't ask for me, right. they did, They just thought he was like some um, um, homeless yeah. person with a mental health deficit. And so they just treated him, gave him a sandwich, and sent him on his way. And they never reported it to police, but they would bill him. And so, <laughs> so I had to backtrack the bills. It took me two months to backtrack the bills because you know everything is billed i guess in arrears or whatever so it came like 30 days late so i would start backtracking the bills and then that's how i found him at a convalescent home in downtown la and then i brought him home so that was the longest time he went missing but it wasn't until we had an incident where i was cutting august fingernails in the house and we were all living in the same house and then one night i was doing august nails and august never liked to get his nails done so he would start he started screaming at the top of his lungs and then mike came out of nowhere did not recognize me and started and started attacking me physically saying you are not going to hurt my son and the crazy thing about that is he was calling for me at the same time he was like nakaya nakaya we need help this demon is hurting oh. augie it was the craziest shit and so i wasn't even fighting back augie even the dog um dog and augie were both like what the hell is going on why is he calling for mama but then he kept like kicking grabbing augie away from me it was like kicking at me to get me away from augie and then finally i got us in the room and I got me and Augie in the room and I closed the door. And then 10 minutes later, Mike calmed down and he didn't even know what was happening. When I told him, he just started crying. Mm -hmm. He was like so, so upset and so devastated because that's that wasn't him, you know. But he thought somebody was attacking Augie because he heard yeah. Augie screaming and he, and he just didn't see me, yeah. you know, because that's how bad his disease was. But it was at that moment that I realized that I cannot take care of this man in this house by myself. Like, I don't know what I was thinking, but this is not a good idea like because he's only going to get worse, you know. So I put him in another nursing home. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to take Augie on his bucket list trip. Because Augie, by that time, was already in a wheelchair. And we had been having problems at school. It took them forever to get a ramp. Uh, just like the whole process. They claimed that they didn't have to provide transportation. I was reading all about the laws related to children in schools, like straight from the actual laws themselves. Right. I was on the Internet every day, all day, just reading and learning everything I could to learn how to help my kid. So I became in, 
uh, hella advocate for special needs kids. And a lot of people were like, why don't you just take Augie out of that school? And I remember saying stuff and people just being like, what? And I'd be like, it's not just about Augie. It's, if they do this to Augie, because they have been doing it to special needs kids and families for the longest time. I remember them telling me about one kid that had diabetes and they, because they didn't even have a school nurse. And they were like, well, we don't have a nurse. So what are you going to do? Not realizing that they're supposed to have a nurse there, that they can't tell a parent they don't have a nurse, that if you want a nurse, you're going to have to leave the school. No, that's not what you tell a parent, because that's not how the law works. You have to have somebody there to be able to help the kids. And they just were not, they just were not doing that. And they just, because part of it was that they couldn't afford it. I remember parents saying to me, well, if they have to pay for all the, and they had to pay for PT, OT, adaptive PE, speech, um, they all had to get all these devices. They had to um, make sure he had an eye gaze device for school. They had to make sure that all these things were in place and all those things cost money. Even some of the parents came to me, well, if they have to spend all that money on Augie, they're not going to have um, any money left over for the kids to knit. I was like, fuck that, fuck that knitting. I was like, my kid is allowed to go to school just like your kid is allowed to go to school. You're not going to tell me that they can't afford to buy knitting needles for the kids and have a ramp. And have, making sure that they are properly providing my kids with the stuff he needs. Like, no, the services he's supposed to get at school. No, I'm not I'm not trying to hear that. And so uh, that's when me and some of the mom group fell out because I was just like, no. And you wanted Augie's friends to understand what was going on too, right? Before Augie brought a wheelchair to school, I told the teacher that we need to tell the kids why Augie needs the wheelchair. And that we had a little group meeting where we sat with the kids. And I told the kids that Augie had a mutant gene in his brain, sort of like Professor X. And he was going to have to be in a wheelchair. But he was still the same Augie. And they were like, yeah, we remember when Augie used to um, climb the trees with us. And now he can't climb the trees. And they were like, yeah. And it's going to make it so that it's hard for him to walk and talk and things like that. But, you know, he's still the same Augie. And the kids got it. And they were like, is he going to die? And I was like, well, everybody's going to die. You know, you know, and we don't know when. So, you know, it's just you just be happy and be friends with your friends or whatever. And we had a grief counselor come while I was doing that and talk to the kids or whatever. But we hadn't told the parents about it beforehand. The parents were pissed. They were like, how dare you talk about your kid's illness in front of our kids? And I was like, listen, all he can talk about his disease with any of these fucking kids he wants to. There's no law and actually it's against the law for you to prevent him to talk about his disability. Number one. Number two, he has a terminal illness. And if the kids know, and it's because you haven't even told them that grandpa died, you told them that grandpa, because this is an actual thing one of the parents did, said that grandpa had moved away and then tell their kid that grandpa died because they didn't want to talk to their kid about death. And this is when they were in third grade. And I'm like, that's on you. But I'm not going to have, my kid knows what's going on with him. He knows his disease and we're not going to pretend that it is not happening. Just because these are things that you don't want to talk to your kids about. And so then we started having parent groups where I would talk to the parents. I went to the first one where the parents, because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Because the first, basically they were all crying because they had known August since he was in mm. kindergarten. Because he's been in the same class with the same kids from the kindergarten to eighth grade. So they kind of, they kind of couldn't deal with it. And a lot of them started crying. So I stopped coming to the meetings and actually said the meetings got better because it was better able for them to deal with it. And also we had to put protocols in place because then later on, Augie started having seizures because one of the, the reason why JHD is worse than HD is because even though it's like Parkinson's plus Alzheimer's plus ALS plus dementia plus uh, all together, the kids also have epilepsy. So he didn't have his first seizure until 2017, but that was, um, that's when it really protocols still had to be put into place because he would sometimes have seizures on campus and, you know, and seizures are bad. But yeah, so... 
Um, so eventually, um, so I took, uh, that's when I did Augie's baby bucket list. A lot long after that, I took him on a four month trip cause he wanted to go see the pyramids. He had a whole bucket list full of a whole bunch of crazy shit. <laughs> but you did it all. <laughs> but we did, we did everything, but go see the great wall of China. Um, but we did it all. We went to the pyramids. We went to Tatooine cause he's a star Wars buff. So we went to Dubai and he got to oh. ride around in the desert, but, um, but we had a great time over there and it. And we got to fly an airplane himself in San Diego. He got to ride a helicopter around L.A. with his best friend. He just had a party in the middle of the street. He just had so many. He had his birthday party at Disneyland more than once. He got to be a Make-A-Wish kid. And he got to do all these things. And it just, so that really is how I was able to really deal with having Augie sick, is that I turned it into less of something awful and turned it into this is, we're going to turn it into an adventure where we're going to do things that nobody else your age is doing and no nobody else my age is really doing, you know, because all he's done more and seen more than a lot of people see in their whole entire lives. Like he had his birthday party at the presidential suite at the Ritz Carlton one year and downtown LA with his friends and the kids just had a great time, even though they were up late hanging out. And then in the middle of the night, one of the kids came in with like, oh, he's having a seizure because he was so happy. He had, had enough, he was so happy. He hadn't had enough sleep. And so he's totally started seizing. And people always ask me, well, why do you let him do things like this? And it's like, it's for me, it's not about quantity of life. It's about quality of life. Life is, it's a quality of life issue. So he's in, the presidential suite of the Ritz Carlton with his four best friends in a hot tub, running around in his wheelchair, doing proper wheelies, running through the halls, having a, with, eating chocolate R two D twos, having the time of his life. This is his dream. Like, why would I deny him this? Just to keep him in a room safe and secure where he has, where there's no joy. You know, because life is at the end of the day, it's about. Life is about love and joy and happiness. And if you don't have any of those things, it doesn't matter what other things you have. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, it's going to be empty. You're going to, like, they tell stories all the time about people at the end of their life who did all these, who didn't do anything. And are like, I wish I had done, spent more time with my family. I wish I had loved more or something like that. So I want to, I want to make sure that Augie's life is filled with those things. So, so yeah, so that's why I do that kind of stuff. Because um, I knew there was going to be a point where as he is now, whereas he, where he isn't very verbal at all, he can only say a couple of things and where he cannot, he cannot like move parts of his body fully, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was also during this time though, that you decided to go back to school and create and build devices to help people with special needs and disabilities. And I was like, up all night reading things. A lot of stuff I'd be reading would be like research studies in NIH. That's how I found out about um, some of the research studies Augie's in right now and things that would help him later on. Specifically, his he was in several, he, actually, Augie's in several research studies. He's in um, two juvenile Huntington's disease studies that are basically ob- observational. Um, so we went to the University of Iowa two years in a row so they could see him in person. Um, he was in a study with Elizabeth Mannheim. She did a study specifically focusing on him um, uh, Huntington's disease and a family dynamic and how um, Huntington's disease affects families and affects how you deal in terms of PT and OT and things of that nature. Um, I was in a study on how black people deal with stress. <laughs> Poster child. <laughs> Which is like a whole other different study. Um, and uh, currently he's um, in another study on um, deep brain stimulation because in 
because uh, Augie had been having seizures and the seizures had been getting worse and worse. He was having like anywhere from two to a hundred seizures a day, anywhere from a couple of minutes to an hour, <sighs> really, really bad. And Augie, the little slightest thing would cause, if he was happy, he would have a seizure. If he was sad, he would have a seizure. If he was mad, he would have a seizure. If somebody scared him, he would have a seizure. If he was too hot, he would have a seizure. If he was too cold, he would have a seizure. It was just, and you know, the main cause of death for kids with JHD is either choking or seizures. So I got him a G-tube in 2018 because he was losing tons and tons of weight because he has um, dysphagia. So his throat is closing up and he didn't want to eat because it hurt him. And that was actually a big issue because he was receiving some like services for um, through the regional center. And when it came time to do his G-tube, I really had to think about it because Augie didn't want a G-tube. And I had already already said I wouldn't force him to get anything. And so it was like a, a thing I really had to... Um, think about, but because, and his doctors understood that and were totally behind it. They were like, yeah, decided that's something you want to do. But then it was also like, if he doesn't get this G tube, he is going to starve to death, you know, cause he's getting really skinny, but it was just like, he doesn't want it. I I don't know. The doctors say he can't have it, but, it, but it's, definitely if he doesn't get it, he's going to die quicker than if he does. And, um, and I just, it was just something I really, really, really had to think about. But during this time I was trying to figure it out. Um, his caseworker at the regional center uh, filed a CPS case because I hadn't yet agreed to the G-tube surgery, which was bad for them because then I filed a complaint with the Department of Developmental Disabilities for California because also this is the state of California. You cannot force a parent to give a child a G-tube who is terminally ill. So that created a whole other thing and they had the wrong one with that one. So, and then I ended up, did end up getting the G-tube for Augie because at the end of the day, I could not watch my child starve to death. And that was what that was. And I just couldn't do that. So, um, so as he got a G-tube, it was fun. It actually ended up not being as intense of a thing as I thought it would be. And at the point now where he doesn't even need to go see his gastroenterologist but once a year because I changed his G-tube myself. Because one of the things that since being Augie's parent is I have become a super nurse I can do many, many things. I can change his G-tube. I can change his catheter. I irrigate him. I irrigate his bladder. I do all these things. I change his wounds. I actually have to teach nurses how to do some things sometimes because sometimes some of the LBNs don't know how to do it. Or I come across an RN who has learned how to do it in school but has not, never actually hmm. done it in practice. I had, to teach the, I had to teach two different pharmacists how to dial up his seizure meds because they had never done it before. And so it's just things that people have to learn. But, um, but in... One of the main things is that I wanted Augie to get some things in his brain to help with the seizures, even before they started coming. Like in 2014, when they were still testing stuff in mice and they were like, you know, this really helps his dystonia, which he had. But it also some of the mice that get the surgery don't have seizure anymore. And that's the thing about research that kind of sucks is that from A to Z sometimes takes forever. Mm -hmm. That's why when people are always complaining about the vaccine now, how, oh, they haven't studied it long enough. It's like, how many people do you want to die before you start using stuff? Because I'm one of those people, if they have something right now that they could give, if they tell me that for my kids to live longer, if they tell me it has half arsenic and half crack, and there's only a 25% chance of survival, I would still give it to them. Because I live in a reality where my kid is actually sick. And, and is terminally ill. So I can't live in this fanciful world where, oh, he might get his arm might hurt, or oh, this might happen, or this might happen, because I know what running from death and dodging death looks like. And so I don't play those stupid games.
And so he got approved for that surgery in July. And in August, FDA finally approved um, DBS for seizures, but he was already scheduled for surgery. He had three brain surgeries in September 2019. And since then, his seizures have been A-OK. He only have a seizure if he has an infection or if he's in a super intense pain. Mm. So and so it rarely ever happens. We have to keep him charged, though, because he has to stay charged. And then I have to turn him up. So I turn him up on one side to help his seizures. And I turn him up on the other side to help his dystonia. Eventually, when we get to a point where you could just turn it on and it could be all the way up and it'd be fine. But it's electronic volts in the brain. So so he went like Dr. X to Iron Man now. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So you've read up and you've made yourself an expert on what's available and what's almost available, but not quite yet. And then you want to get your own ideas out there and push them into the field. So you went back to school to become a developer and then you realized you wanted to get into data science. Why exactly? Um, Because one of the things I learned when they were studying Augie's brain is that they were reading the data and I wanted to be able to read the data. They took like five tetrabytes of data from his brain when he was in the hospital for six days to see what was what. And I was like, well, I'm not. And I was looking at all the things that was happening. This was before Neuralink, Elon Musk's company was doing um, when they were first thinking of things and like the code. And I was reading about the different code they were using and they're using a lot of running everything in R and Python. I was like, well, I guess I need to learn R and Python because these are the things that I want to do. I want to be able to, for people like Augie to be able to move devices and move other things with, because Augie already been trained on eye gaze since he was in third grade. So he's great with eye gaze. Like he does that now and he's great at it. But it's like, I want him to be able to do things using your brain with just um, thoughts. And um, and so now I am learning mechanical engineering design so that and then in the fall, I'm going to focus on um, robotic automation. So I'm going I'm doing it a bunch of different places. I am also trying to get a therapist says I got to do more things for me, practice more self-care. So I'm becoming a pilot, private pilot. I'm getting my private pilot's license. So every Tuesday I'm in flight school for six hours. So that's something that I'm doing for myself to be more. You say it's for yourself, but I bet there's another reason. Um, uh, the only other reason is for like the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll start airlifting everyone else out. You're like, ah, oh, there's a need. Oh, I'm like going to fail with. But I will say when I like, even, even though I haven't gone in the air yet because I don't go in the actual air to do my student pilot, student pilot in the air stuff. I use a flight simulator and I remember the first time I went in the simulator just, just, I felt such power and I felt there was just this thing that came over my whole body that just made me feel good. I like to compare it. It was like the best high I've ever had was doing that and I was like oh and I've always wanted to learn how to fly because I like to know how to do things because I know I can knit I can um, do other things too. I can refit you. I can turn your robot into a little solar machine. I like to know how to do things. And so um, the pilot thing, it actually is for me because it's something that I want to do for myself, something I want to learn. But um, so long story short, my husband died in 2019. Mike died in March, 2019. And after he had been living in the house with me and Augie for at least a year and they got, which is what the goal I wanted for them is that I wanted to, them to spend all the time they had together in the same place, which had been hard when I was trying to do it on my own. So I had to, it took me a while to, to jigger it so I could um, um, have both all of us in the house at the same time, because I knew I couldn't do it by myself. But then I realized that I worked it out with the long-term care insurance and I found an agency. So we were able to do that. And it was great. Augie loved it. And 
it was like our little family. And so it was great. And then um, uh, in January, I remember the hospice because Augie and Mike are both on hospice. And the reason why they're on hospice is less. I remember one of my relatives who was in nursing school asked me, why did I have them on hospice? And it was because I learned something during this whole time and taking care of them is that um, uh, if Augie has a seizure or something like that, I would always have to go to the hospital or to the emergency room. Now that he's on hospice, I don't have to do that. The hospice empowers me to turn my home into a mini hospital for at that time for two people. Now it's only for one person so that I have all the materials and all the drugs and everything that the hospital has I have here. But it empowers me to be able to make medical decisions in the house. He has an LVN that's here 24 seven. And if something happens, I like actually there was a time in 2020 to follow 2020. He stopped breathing. At one point, and I had to resuscitate him. That was actually the scariest thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And I thought I would be prepared for it, but I was not. I was in here flipping the fuck out. Excuse my French, but I was because it was super scary. But he was turning blue and I had to resuscitate him. I remember the first time I breathed into him, nothing happened. And the second time I did it, uh, nothing happened. And I kept talking to him at the same time. And I was like giving him chest compression because, you know, I had to learn CPR to live in his house. You got to know CPR. And then, but then the third time, um, after giving him breaths and the chest compressions, he started breathing again on his own. But it was the scariest shit. Like there is nothing, and that's when I that's one of the things I talked to my therapist about. I was like, I thought I was I was I'm giving myself the tools to prepare myself for everything that happens, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you can never really prepare yourself for the worst things. No matter how much you prepare yourself, you're never really gonna be fully prepared. But bad stuff kept piling on. Your mother and your husband passed away within a couple of weeks of one another. And that yet you kept on. Dad's with you now. Took my father in to live with us after my mom died because he has um, Alzheimer's. So my father came to live with us in 2020. And so he lives with me and Augie now. We got a bigger place and um, he lives here. And even though sometimes he wants to know how did he end up in California with me of all places because he never wanted to leave North Carolina. But this is the best place for him. He has a social life. He goes to his little senior center and hangs out with them during the day and hangs out with other seniors. And then he comes home because um, it's better for him to be around um, lots of people. So, but yeah, so Mike died and that was hard. I became a widow, which was something I, I was prepared to be a divorcee, but I was not prepared to be a widow. So it was like a whole other thing. And, and then it just caused more things to evolve. So I moved out of the big house we were living in and I moved, we moved back to Playa Vista, which is where we had first lived and we first, me and Mike Augie first came to live in LA in the exact same building we first came to live in, mostly because Playa Vista is the most handy, accessible community in the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I know because I've been everywhere in the city with a wheelchair, a power chair or a manual chair, and this is the spot. And they have a little shuttle that goes around and and travels everywhere and goes to all the little ice cream shop. And I always had, I remember I had a vision before I moved here after Mike died. I was just like, you know, after Mike and my mom died, I was like, you know, I just want to go get ice cream. The peace to me and contentment to me is just going to get ice cream every day with my dad and my kid. That's all I fucking want to do. Like I, my aspirations have are, are mellow, but that's all I want to do. And now I do that. Yeah, and that sounds like that voice inside your head again. But in the past, when you heard that voice, it would tell you to move on. Now, what about with the data and engineering? I started to realize that this is my purpose. That feeling that I had before that 
it was all going to get old and I was going to get bored with it, that I get bored with it, that that is not happening. If anything, I get more involved and more obsessed, which is crazy because even all the things I did before, I was never really obsessed with it. It was like, oh, it was great. It was fun. It was cool. But I'm, I am obsessed with the stuff I do now. Like I will stay up for days at a time, like stay, literally stay up all night coding, working on something, knowing that I can fix this problem. I'm doing something wrong. If I change it a tiny bit, I can fix it and I can just make something happen that's really great and purposeful. So like I ended up finding my purpose and my per- purpose at the end of the day, I do want to help people. It's a full circle for me because I am going to help people. The point is just to apply all these things to create devices that will help people and to figure out a way to not just create devices, but also to create apps to inform people, to tell people what resources are out there that they don't know about. Because sometimes I feel like, I feel as if the main reason people don't do things is because they don't know how, which is crazy because, you know, we have the internet and Google and people watch YouTube videos about aliens and um, about how the vaccine make you a mutant or something all night long, but they won't do things to really learn about how to make their own worlds better. And I found that they want other people to do those things for them. So that's what I seek to do. Well, yeah, you clearly are doing that. And I, you know, you say that quality of life is more important than quantity, but um, it's easy for someone to say like you who has really jammed in like 17 lifetimes into this one (laughs) half a lifetime that you've lived so far. And you are making the world better for people. And I love that your spirit is like driving you. You know, you said you, you needed to feel like in your heart, you're doing the thing you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that is about, you know, connection with other people and helping them find the resources they need and giving them that care. So you are a beacon of light, my dear, and, (laughs) and so good um, to share all of this, these amazing, um, I mean, this is it's like a soap opera that you're living (laughs) but an astounding one and one for good and um we're so delighted that you shared it with us thanks so much thanks leslie that was nikaya cherry chinchilla who's a data scientist and engineer focused on the use of data and technology and making significant changes in the lives of people every day her interest centers on the creation and development of technology apps games and advanced bionics for special needs children disabled citizens and underserved communities Though she has extensive work experience in public relations for fashion and media companies, she has developed hard-won expertise in neurodegenerative diseases, data analytics, assistive technology, digital media, and special education advocacy. She's also the 25th reunion chair for the Dartmouth class of 1996. All classmates, please note that registration is now open for the in-person event July 22nd through 24th. Go to dartmouth1996.org for more information. And for all our listeners, thank you so much. We're so glad that you continue to join our guests and me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on Roads Taken. Roads Taken.